In my work, where you're working in very broad strokes, we have to use story more as the driver and not the thing. What are those, you know, tropes, those archetypes, those things that people will, will go, oh yeah, I get it, and they have to get it fast because you don't have their attention for long. Like in, in a movie, you have somebody for two, maybe, you know, two and a half hours watching. Our experiences and most of the things I do, and I think it also, it's relatable to what they're doing here in retail. I mean, you have people for a very short amount of time. So you better be able to, to get to the core of what you're trying to say, what you're trying to do really quickly. If I can present them with something that they can see in themselves or something that they emotionally have some relationship with you know, and do it quickly, then I'll be successful. I'm David Kepron, and this is Next Level Experience Design. Welcome to the Next Level Experience Design podcast. Over our four seasons, we've been focusing on dialogues on data, design, architecture, technology, and the arts. The podcast features provocateurs for whom disruption and transformation are a way of engaging in work and play every day. They include thought leaders who are driven by curiosity, a passion to create the new possible, and a mindset of promoting new paradigms of experiences. They've included leading scientists and artists, musicians, architects, entertainers, and storytellers whose research, explorations, and built work bring new understanding of the impact and relevance of placemaking on the world. On the show, we tend to focus on what's now and what's next. In this episode, we talk about storytelling with a master of the art and science, Joe Lencicero, former senior vice president of Walt Disney Imagineering. We'll get to our conversation in a minute, but a few thoughts on why I love this topic so much. Stories are powerful. They're among the engines of our culture, and we've relied on sharing them for millennia as part of our human, sociocultural, and spiritual development. We stamped out narratives around tribal fires, shared them on trade routes, and built public squares combining commerce and culture through the need to share life experiences with storytelling. Stories are also crucial to our empathic development, as well as providing a context to our lives. And stories can also act as a path to follow for designers that provide a reference point for design decisions guiding massing or volume, layouts, uses of materials, geometries, and other aesthetic considerations. Story can be used as a tool to determine the sequence of a brand's signature moments and experiences along a customer journey. The best stories are always easy to remember because they paint pictures in our minds that tap into our deep feelings. Because they often create emotional responses and evoke strong visualizations, they play into our long history of communicating through pictures. And in many ways, stories could be seen as the framework by which we remember things. The core components of good storytelling may be the same as they've been for years. In fact, Joseph Campbell asserted in his book, A Hero with a Thousand Faces, that there was only really one story, a structure that was simply reinterpreted over and over again across time and across cultures. The super interesting feature of our brains and stories 
is that while reading, listening to, or watching stories unfold on a screen, we develop elaborate mental representations of the situations described in the text, lyrics, or the scenes. Researchers have actually gathered evidence through using fMRI machines of individuals reading narratives and have determined that as you're doing that, there are changes in the region of the brain that increase in activity when viewing those similar things in the real world. In other words, as subjects read about a character in a story, their brains react in a manner that's similar to them personally experiencing those characters' situations. Studies by Brian Pulvermuller have demonstrated that brain regions involved in reading action words, like verbs, are some of the same regions involved in performing analogous actions in the real world. So, for example, if you read a story or see the word throw or catch, brain regions light up in an fMRI scan that are activated when moving one's arms or hands. When engaging with story, our brains react to words as if we're experiencing the story in the real world. And for that reason, it becomes extraordinarily interesting when you consider stories and relationships to brand experience places. Cognitive science Roger Shank explains humans aren't ideally set up to understand logic. They're ideally set up to understand stories. Now, I've been fascinated with stories for years. Stories were a crucial part of bedtime rituals with my sons when they were very young. We were deeply connected to the value of story and their ability to communicate ideas, morals, and values. When my older son was very young, he loved stories and asked my wife to read two stories at the same time so that he could introduce the characters from one narrative to those in another book. So stories became a way for my children to explain the world to other characters in books and for us to explain the world to our children. But that's not so unusual. We've been doing that for years. The passing down of culture through stories and narrative was a critical way that we shared the meaning of the world, the context of our lives, and what it meant to be in community. These are all things that story has embedded in it as a power to help explain some of the mysteries of the universe and what it means to be me in the context of my family, my culture, my nation, and maybe some other strange cosmological relationship to the universe. Stories help us make sense of it all. And when you consider the relationship between brain and us actually connecting in a neurophysiological way to the world around us, as we listen to or see stories unfold and we are exposed to brand narratives, neural firing patterns actually cement those connections, making it easier for us to understand and do those things that are connected to our brand relationships. In a way, then, you might even consider the idea that as I experience brands and I'm continually involved in the process of engaging with them and doing the rituals of those experiences, those experiences get hardwired into my neural network. I become part of the brand, or rather the brand maybe becomes part of me. And that all happens through the power of story, the narrative, and the way the content unfolds. So like I said, story has the power of connecting to us emotionally, and that's good because the deeper we're emotionally connected to something, the more longer lasting it has, the residue of that experience lives in us longer, and the lifetime value of a customer might also become longer. Story also has the added value from the design side of being able to be seen as a roadmap between where we are today, current state, to where we're going tomorrow in some future state, and being able to use the narrative as a way to get there. So... This is where my guest comes into this narrative, no pun intended. 
Joe Lance Cicero is the former creative executive senior vice president from Hong Kong, Disneyland, and Disney Cruise Line portfolios for Walt Disney Imagineering. Lance Cicero served as a senior creative executive in charge of projects for Walt Disney Imagineering across multiple platforms in the company's cruise, theme park, hotel and resort, restaurant, and retail business lines. With more than three decades of Disney experience, Joe worked with teams of artists, writers, architects, engineers, and he served as the eyes and artistic conscience of a project from conception through completion. He began his Disney career in 1979 in feature animation, now called Walt Disney Animation Studios, working on the animation, special effects, storyboarding, and story development of numerous features, shorts, and special projects. After a number of years and promotions within the Walt Disney organization, Joe was also promoted to creative vice president for Tokyo Disney Resort, and he was charged with overseeing all design in Tokyo in 2001, and then he was again promoted in 2007 to creative senior vice president with the additional responsibilities of overseeing all design for Hong Kong Disneyland, including leading the design of a major land expansion of the park. Joe is currently Executive Vice President and Creative Director for Zeitgeist Design and Production and a consultant to the themed entertainment, cruise, museum, and hospitality industries with a portfolio of ongoing international and domestic projects in various stages of design and production. As a note to the listener, I caught up with Joe Lencicero at the Shop Marketplace event in Austin, Texas, where he was the keynote speaker, where he gave an amazing presentation on the relationship between story as a tool for engaging on an emotional level, tugging on the heartstrings, as well as a tool for designers to use as a path to follow to get design projects completed. So you're going to hear the din of a trade show floor behind us with lots of commotion, but pay no attention to that because the conversation is engaging nevertheless. So we welcome Joe Lancicero to the Next Level Experience Design Podcast. Sir, live from the floor. I should say live from New York. I've always wanted to say that, you know. It's... It's it's a little bit like that, and it's not even Saturday night. Uh, Joe, I, I you know um, I'm delighted to actually have you here. I, I sat down to a session you were doing this morning and uh, here at the shop marketplace and about story, and it is a fascination of mine. And uh, what I was most interested with was your lead off, talking about the brain and um, the story and the brain, and and we'll get into the story and the other stuff. But here, maybe little known fact, I don't know, maybe you know it, but what I have discovered in my fascination with neuroscience is that um, whether you see or hear or watch a story, your brain acts as if you're actually in those stories. So if, for example, you're watching a story or hearing a story about a dad throwing a baseball with his son, the premotor areas of your brain are actually active as if you were doing it. Now, mechanisms are in place that makes you not be throwing things around or reacting as if. Uh, but I found that fascinating. So what became really interesting, and I'd love you to respond to this, is when we're immersed in good stories, our brains are building neural connections and wiring neurons to neurons, synaptic connections to synapses, so that our brain becomes a physical representation of those narratives. And if you listen to those stories over and over again, hardwired into you is this story. And so in many ways, what I love about your work from Disney and, and also talking about retail, uh, which we're doing this morning, is that... In a, in a way, the more we live the brand story, 
um, we also become the brand story, you know, which is, I find a fascinating idea. That was the key to our exploration was always trying to find a way that people could see themselves in the experience. Find that thing, you know, whether it was, um, well, like using a, a movie or an own story, you know, there's always things in it that, that people react to and they know, and that, especially a good, a good movie or a good, a good book. You find that thing that, wow, I, I may not have had that experience, but there was an experience like that. And so, and, and in my work, where you're working in very broad strokes, we have to use story more as the driver and not the thing. What are those you know, tropes, those archetypes, those things that people will will go, oh yeah, I get it, and they have to get it fast because you don't have their attention for long. Like in, in a movie, you have somebody for two, maybe, you know, two and a half hours watching. Our experiences and most of the things I do, and I think it also, it's relatable to what they're doing here in retail. I mean, you have people for a very short amount of time, so you better be able to to get to the core of what you're trying to say, what you're trying to do, really quickly. If I can present them with something that they can see in themselves, or something that they emotionally have some relationship with, you know, and do it quickly, then I'll be successful. That connection piece, you, I think you'd mentioned that early on, it's an emotional connection, right? We connect with the emotions first, and I. I found it quite clever, and you came back to it at the end, which I was hoping you were going to do, which was uh, the baby, the puppy, and the the, the, cho- or the Sunday, <laughs> the ice cream Sunday. And I was hoping that you were going to give us the quiz saying, name the three or four things that I had on the side as interstitial moments to rest, you know, to see if we could remember, because I bet people would. Yeah. Because those are the things that, that connect, like you see those things. I, and I've been talking about dogs at my house. My, my sons and wife aren't crazy about me having a dog, although I grew up with one, so I keep on making a pitch for one. Not there yet? No. No, I don't think. I think it's going to be like a retirement thing or something. Oh. Then I'll have a dog. I can walk around the ranch or something. Um, but, you know, those are, those are things that I have an immediate emotional connection to, you know, and, and I think, therefore, we remember them better. Yeah. I mean, it's, it seems like an obvious thing, so... What about connecting, um, you, know, you worked at Imagineering for 30 years, is that correct? 30, well, Disney all told 38 years. I, st- I started as an animator. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, and with some of the better animators that we well, all have come to love and know, right? I, I used to have a, a slide in my presentations, there was this, and it's floating around the internet, of the, the first class from CalArts. Mm-hmm. And in that class was John Lasseter, who went on to start amazing. Pixar. At Pixar. Yeah, yeah, and John Musker, who went on to write Little Mermaid and Aladdin, all these films, and, and a number of other pretty famous people in the industry that went on to do, do pretty significant stuff. Yeah. And then there's me. And so I, I, I always put that in there to remind me that relative to others, I am an underachiever. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't want to, this is a subject about you, it's not about Lasseter, but um, you know, the Pixar story is extraordinary and you you referenced a lot of the Pixar work, which is, um, and and changed, significant change, you know, when Steve Jobs popped into the scene and and how that world, you know, evolved. By the Uh, way, have you read the online Steve Jobs makes something wonderful? The free it's a free online no. it's a free online book right now for anybody listening if you're 
It's it's Steve Jobs' story in his words. His foundation, oh, wow. led by his wife, went through and basically created a new biography, but it's all told in his own words. Oh, from, that's fascinating. From memos, from emails, from speeches, um, you know, just all, all culled together. And it's probably one of the most inspiring things I've read really? lately. I was reading it, and, and in fact, it was going to it influenced a little bit of how I was going to present today. Do, do, but yeah. but I mean, I I mean, talk about an original thinker, yeah, and yeah. and a, an an incredible communicator too. You know, it it well yes, and I, there there are probably people who would uh, agree, and and a few who, who might likely disagree. But well, and, and that and that was what made him. I mean, he he didn't set out to try to make you know say things that everybody liked or sure. do things that everybody liked, but he was always true to his convictions. Uh, that is true. Uh, yeah. That that is true. Um, I, Walter Isaacson's biography of him, yeah. I thought, was actually very good. Actually, Walter Isaacson's written a lot of great biographies. Uh, from Ben Franklin to you know a bunch of other folks, but um, can you put Isaacs, uh, you put um, Ben Franklin and, and Steve Jobs in the same bucket? Pro- probably. I mean, they actually they both changed the world of publishing, <laughs> yeah. right? If you think of it that way, uh, yeah. And and I guess you know Jobs just used what um, uh, Ben Franklin discovered, which yeah, is how, how to use electricity. electricity. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, well, so maybe they are... Slightly may, more complex, though, wait, but yeah. Maybe, maybe they're the same person. Maybe it's just a reincarnation that we never knew, you know, <laughs> which is possible. Because I've always liked drawing as a kid, you know, and, and loved the world of imagination, and I certainly grew up um, where Sunday nights and, the you know, Disney mm-hmm. was the thing, you know, next to Star Trek, you know, I think it was Star Trek and Disney was in the same evening or something, and, and, uh, and those are the stories I grew up with. You know, I remember Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs that you showed this morning, and I, I can totally align with the idea of the scene where she's bitten the apple, she's fallen asleep, or, or died, you know, principally or yeah. presumably to everybody right. watching, right? Until the you know, prince comes along, the the manufacturing of story and the use of story to create those places that you were connected to as a, as the SVP of the Imagineering Group. Um, tell us about that. I mean, I'm really curious about how. Because people people don't see the story unfolding in 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 the way it goes from the sort of germination of the idea, they only see the end result of that whole map. So one thing I wanted to talk about is this idea of story and developing the narrative as a design tool, mm-hmm. the map to help you get somewhere. Mm-hmm. So how did that happen in your world? You know, how did story emerge? as being the, the guide map for, you know, how you would make decisions leading to the thing that people would never have any connection to, but for the final incarnation of how this narrative finally came to life. Can you sort of unfold that a bit? Sure. And I, I talked a little, in fact, I, in my speech today, remember I talked about story as narrative and story as subtext. Right. I think Disney originally, um, more of the stories like for the parks, Mm. were were created stories mm-hmm. um, but they lived in a universe of in, in Walt's universe of stories of true life adventures of um, you know uh, of course fantasy land his fascination with the future so there were the there were these big subject matters that were kind of the, the meta themes that then they built smaller stories under and they were using the story more 
and what I talked about this morning is the subtext, mm -hmm. which there was an agreed upon story within the design group that everybody said, this is our roadmap and we're gonna follow that. And then as Disney got more and more into using IP, and a lot of this was because of the, the power of marketing sure. and the fact that they, they realized, you know, people would come, getting back to what I said earlier about, you know, having to use shorthand in what we do, it really helped you because people came pre-wired with some emotional connection to sure. that story. They, I've seen, yeah. They I, saw the movie, yeah. they saw Little Mermaid, they know she's longing, you know, to be human, they, and I all those be with people are. Right. And, and that's, I'll cut that part out because right. I don't think anyone wants to hear me pretend to sing The Little Mermaid tune. Well, maybe I'll leave it in. I don't know. We'll just see how it goes. So that your job became easier then in that, you know, you, in fact, we would have these sessions where we would go through and we so we, we need to check the box. Like I, we did a Winnie the Pooh attraction in, in Tokyo. And we said, well, Winnie the Pooh, you know, the movies that Disney did, mm -hmm. these were the characters, these were the songs, you know, and then we actually created a hierarchy making sure that, okay, if I'm a guest and I'm going to go to a Winnie the Pooh attraction, I want to make sure I, you know, see heflumps and woozles, I want to bounce with Tigger, you know, we, we checked all those boxes. So it made, it made the job pretty easy, but also it was more than just editing, it was finding those moments that... A, we felt had the most emotional connection, mm -hmm. and the music really helps with that. Nothing, you know, makes things sticky like that song that you were just singing. I mean, the fact that you rem remembered it and how it connected to that moment in the in the film. So that 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 was kind of the easier part of the job. But then when it came time to do non-branded or or like the work that I did on the cruise ship, where we were using the brand, but the story wasn't going to be the thing, mm -hmm. you know. It was going to inform the experience in some way. Then, then that became about you know creating that kind of design manifesto within the team, where everybody agreed this this is the, again the story that we're going to use, and it, understanding and knowing that it's not necessarily going to be the you know a piece of the end result. Oh, but right. What it is going to do is work as a filter for all of us to make design choices and make sure, you know, that is the right design choice does, to does make. Does that fit, yeah. 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 It, what I love about that, and I, I align with that really clearly because this is what we do in the, in the architecture design world in making retail stores, which I spent 25 years doing and then left and went to Marriott. But, oh, by the way, I mean, Marriott was the same thing. Yeah. Um, we were very clear about receiving the brand brief. We understood who the customer was. We understood right. what the certain metrics around our KPIs were going to be. But it was all about in my side, what is the narrative that you build that acts as that foundational mm. sort of checks and balances really for you um, that works with all those other things you have, right? Mm -hmm. Does this really align with the guest profile? Or rather, maybe the different way of saying is you come up with this guest profile and then you begin to say, well, what story seems to fit with, with that individual in terms of what their expectations might be, where their passions may be, where their dreams may go, and then you create stories around that. But I love that. For example, we did something for Renaissance Hotel and built it all around the theater. And the one question that came up in the digital meetings was, if a Renaissance was a Broadway show or Broadway theater, what would it be like? And so we built and changed the language Ooh. around 
even the things that we did, the places, the, the hotel lobby was a stage, and within that stage you had various sets, and within those sets you had various activation opportunities or props mm. that drove the narrative forward. And the goal was, of course, that once you stepped into this lobby, you should be able to understand these areas. It, it, maybe you don't see them as a stage set because that was our internal language right. to help us in the design process, but that they were clearly defined. And I remember saying to the team, I said, here's the thing. Uh, these two, the, the people who are actors within this narrative and the, the space that is going to allow that story to unfold need to work together because in the theater, if you don't have an audience, it's called a rehearsal. Um, right. If you don't have the actors, it's called intermission. <laughs> and, and so what we need to do right. is make sure that we've got a full-on musical production right. with a big closing number, you right. know, and what is that? But what I found interesting about what you said in that little clip that I hummed of, of you yeah. know, the Under the Sea, uh, whatever it was from Little Mermaid was, I love musical theater, and, and the key is what is the residual of that experience when you're walking to the car after right, you've got out of the theater, what are you left with? And are you humming a song? Yeah. You know, and even if you can't remember the whole song, like I, I don't remember half the songs from Hamilton, but I, I do know a few of them that keep on playing in my head that I go back to. And there's something that you had mentioned this idea of stickiness, you know, in, yeah. in there, now, which is not a new thing, but no. um, what, do you, what do you think are some of the factors that, that drive experiences towards stickiness, you know, those lasting memories that people have? Well, I'm going to go back a little bit about oh. the, the theater first. Do it, yeah, Because yeah. that's a great metaphor, you know, and I thought, that, and that's great that you guys use that yeah. as, as a, a design map for a Work. space. Sure. Yeah. You know, and um, in fact, Disney talked about Disneyland as being a grand theater. Interesting. And in fact, even the way he designed it, you know, he wanted you to leave the outside world, made you walk through tunnels to kind of decompress you, and then when you came out, it gave you kind of your establishing shot, this, you know, this nostalgic Main Street that brought you to a place of calm and nostalgia. And then at the end of that street is a fantasy castle telling you, okay, now, now you're in this place where, you know, nostalgia and fantasy rule and it actually it sets up this whole way of feeling the same way like you were just talking about going through a theater experience mm -hmm. and all of it is about that's the suspension of disbelief you gotta let I love that. you gotta let you know people know that they're in a make-believe place in a theater in a theme park and they know it's not real but you gotta have enough real-world things that they can suspend disbelief but it's still gonna connect them and have some kind of emotional and intellectual even impact on them. Yeah. Even though they know this is, this is not, not yeah. for real. That's really interesting because I love the idea of the suspension <coughs> of disbelief. Because it's easy for us, and this is clearly a differentiator between kids and us adults, right? Yeah. Kids suspend disbelief all the time. Well, That's just the nature of their world. And somehow, like uh, I don't know if you know Sir Ken Robinson, he goes, you know, we're oh. all oh, we're yeah, all I we're know. all born creative. We just you know we just have it educated out of us. Yeah. And somewhere along the line, we stop suspending disbelief. We yeah. start to become cynical. We begin to question. We become maybe less trusting. But I want to go back to that idea. Um, beyond the the metaphor of the, the theater, we were talking about stickiness, right? Like yeah. What are those component pieces? Is it just that it? pulls on the heartstrings or are there other pieces for you when you were at, at Disney and Imagineering that you relied on 
to develop that connection? Like I, you know, like I said earlier, um, some ways we had it easy in that way because of the strength of the brand. Mm. And um, I think the difficult part was living up to the expectations of the brand, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Because people came with such well-formed um, idea of what that experience should bring them. Mm-hmm. Um, been a lot of talk with my peers about, you know, where, where Disney has evolved in terms of my part, you know, the theme park uh, part of it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and a lot of um, negative discussion around the effect technology has had on the experience. That's interesting. And I'm not answering your sticky question, but maybe we can no, get back to it. No, that. that's fine. No, but no. Can I jump to the technology thing? Yeah. I'm really curious about that because uh, I have this you know, intense fascination. Um, we're here and you're looking at these panels and Rafik yeah. Anadol is, is a, a guy who I've had a fascination with literally for the past, I don't know, almost 10 years now yeah. since I saw his, his work that he did for Salesforce in San Francisco in their lobby and oh, he, with, that, with the wave and wait, the capture. Yeah. I mean, remarkable stuff. And so I've always been interested, and we talk a lot on the show here about the use of technology to drive experience. Yeah. And I'm not talking about a kiosk. I'm talking about the power of uh, technology to, to augment placemaking yeah. uh, and how that can happen in a digitally mediated world. Yeah. But it seems to me, and it's been a long time since I've been to you know, Orlando or Anaheim, um, mm-hmm. and, but that seemed to be real, uh, um, it was very tactile, it was very real, there wasn't a whole lot of, at least on the surface that I could tell, maybe Epcot Center mm-hmm. was a little bit different, but uh, of technology being used. Did you find that over the years, the introduction of technologies and digital media sort of making was changing the way those experiences were being created? Yeah, very much so. And in a good, for, I think on the design side, because yeah. there's, there's the design side and then there's the operation side and mm-hmm. how technology was used in those two arenas. And never the two shall meet, apparently. Well, <laughs> unfor- unfortunately, no. Well, yeah, this, I mean, but I, I think it's very the, the nature of the, the way the, the business works. Yeah. On the de- on the design side, like one of the one of the projects, one of the last projects I did, and probably one of the ones that I'm most proud of is is and it's not seen by many because it's in Hong Kong. Um, it's called Mystic Manor, and it's the, our version of uh, the Haunted Mansion. If you're familiar with the Haunted Mansions and the other parks, mm-hmm. you know they're singing Happy Ghosts, 99 Ghosts live in this mansion. You know it was born of the 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 musical theater era you know was a product of a different time but at its core it's a big magic show and they use some pretty cool and some very very tried and true magic effects like i don't know if you know what pepper's ghost is there's a scene in there where you go through a ballroom and the ghosts are all dancing and they look transparent but it's just a giant mirror that's reflecting dimensional ghosts and you're looking at a reflection in, in a piece of glass it's like a hologram yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah I mean very lo- but but very effective so that was like their version of it. and we had to do like the 21st century version of it so and it, we used uh, we used uh, projection mapping we used controlled lasers but our my direction to the team was I don't want anyone for a second to be aware of the technology. It all had to be in the service of the story 
and in the service of the experience. Mm. And actually, I think it was the closing ceremonies to the Vancouver Olympics. And they did this amazing, it was all done with, with projection mapping on the, on the ground, but they had just big blobs blocks and, and squares and, and, you know, half spheres, but they, they made them look like, like whales in the ocean. Do you remember that? I, I think that was actually um, in, in China. That, that, that oh, sounds a lot like, I think it was, it was one of those. But it was amazing. The whole floor of the stadium yeah. comes alive. But you, but you were, you weren't aware of the fact, at least I felt like, they did a great job, uh, the suspension of disbelief. I knew it was projection and whatever, but I was buying into the moment again, and it was a combination of the music and the choreography and all those things. So we kind of used that as a reference point for the things we were we were doing. And we could have never done what we did without, you know, the, the progression of technology. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's on the creative and good side. On the operational side, you know, they found, well, and a lot of it, of course, because it's a business, is being generated by the desire to make more money. Sure. So they created all these apps, you know, to, you know, control more of the operational experience of moving people through the parks, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're going to have to now make a reservation to go to a restaurant. They they started this thing, which the initial idea was great. It was called Fast Pass. You know, if you... If you wanted to, you know, and it was free though, you had to download and then, you know, then you could get, you know, have a specific time to get on traction because mm-hmm. that was a huge dissatisfier with the guests, you know, having to wait in line for two oh, yeah. hours to go on a, a three minute, you know, space mountain ride. Right. So the intention was good, but then there were, I'll just say, greedy executives who saw, oh, we can charge for this. And now what's happened is, there was something getting back to that, you know, the the kind of spontaneity of the experience that, like I said, that the suspension of disbelief walking into this theater-like experience and just being immersed in the world and just being able to go with it, they kind of took that away. That's interesting. And now you're, and in fact, the complaint is people are spending more time looking at their phone than they are at these billion-dollar worlds that they've created around them that's fascinating to me because well it's it's a common i was going to say complaints but i don't want to call it a complaint it's a common concern um about you know all those gen z kids are always looking at their phones you know they can't actually have a conversation with us things that we hear you know like all the time right but but that's actually really interesting where the technology would would take you away from the heads up view of the world around and you'd, you'd be interacting with the environment through your device rather than through you know an engaged physical intimate right. relationship kind of you know connection point you right. know uh, to the world around you in a totally uh, analog way as opposed right. to a, a digital way and, and, I, and I believe there's a balance because mm-hmm. I think like mm-hmm. you know so many like museum experiences now I mean art experiences you go you you know, you, you swipe the QR code and it, you know, put your headphones on and sure. it brings the experience to another level for you. Yeah. You know, but that is, I think, gluing the experience more to, you know, creating a, a connection more with the experience. 
when you're when you're dealing with trying to book a restaurant and you know book a time on a ride or having to do a pay up for something that's having the opposite effect yeah. it's taking you out of that that yeah. that suspension of disbelief, disbelief going into a fantasy world it takes world. the magic out of the magic kingdom yeah. let's just tell you right <laughs> exactly. now yeah. so so i got a term for you let's going to play this let's see how this goes so i had this thought a few years ago um, when i was writing my book retail revolution that i was really tapped into the idea of technology and i was fascinated with the emerging cohort of guests my sons or the Gen Z's or the oh. Alphas, you know, for whom, yes, the world would never have existed without that device in their hand. Got it. Um, but the, the term was this, or my conclusion was this at the end, was that um, technology is great. And I full, I'm a full I'm a technophile. I love the idea mm. of immersive digital experiences. I have friends at Moment Factory who in Montreal. Who oh, do, I love Love those. I got to work just a tiny bit with them. I'm huge fans of everything they, they do. They have done some amazing things. Like, yeah. who knew you could turn a forest walk into, into an a, adventure, right? right. You know, and an, an immersive adventure. What? And story-driven adventure. Super, super brilliant guys. Yeah. Um, I had Amal Hazelton. He was a director of their, their cities team for mm-hmm. a number of years. Was on the podcast uh, early season one, probably. And we've become fast friends. But um, the, the term I came up with was technempathy. And the idea was that technology is great, but unless you're using it in the service of empathic extension, connecting it to relationship, if you're not using technology for anything else, then if you're using it for technology's sake, for that thing, you know? Like, how is the technology serving the empathic relationship? And can you use, instead of just thinking of it as technology, Put the filter of technempathy in place so that as you come up with that cool thing, whatever that thing yeah. is, you're thinking of as a, does this, does this grow the relationship? Does this make does this make the is is there an empathic sort of you know underpinning to why I'm doing this rather than simply generating that extra you know uptick in revenue? I would have so used your tech empathy because that was what we were trying to do with that attraction. There you go. You well, know, we can use it, it now. Yeah, let's, get work, yeah. let's get working on that. <laughs> You know, I I don't know how you sit in here for nothing. You know, I've got I got a plan for you. You know, which is funny, but yeah, that just seemed to me to be a way to continue to reference. Well, that's cool, but beyond cool, and that is going to generate more money. Does it serve the relationship somehow? You know, how does how can we use these environments to grow the relationship? And I found what you said was very interesting about expectation sets because that's really interesting. That that most people will show up at the parks already have watched the movie a hundred times, yep. they've downloaded it, you know, onto their whatever, DVD or their TiVo, whatever. Uh, they've, they've got the action figures and et cetera, et cetera, and we can go on. they got their, their bed linens and their, yeah. their pillowcases. They've got Muriel right, all right, over right. it, right? And, um, but the, which means, though, that they also come with an expectation right. that's elevated. Right. Like, don't not deliver now, yeah. guys. So, um, I actually, there's another talk that I've, I've done at these conventions and it's called um, floaters swimmers and divers designing for all your users or all your guests interesting and this came about because mostly from my learnings on the cruise ship but through all the work work I did understanding that those like you just said you know you do have there's this level of expectation and a lot of a lot of the guests that are walking through the gate and just paid their mission are uber fans yeah. yeah just like you just said they've seen the movie they know the songs they have the pillowcases at home yeah. but 
there's also maybe dad who's coming in and has little or no affinity to the experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And then people in between. So we started talking about, and how do we create an experience that's going to play, you know, and we said, first there's the floaters. That could be dad. You know, they have a peripheral understanding of the story or even a theme like a theme park. I gotta go with the, what's uh, this theme park? So But really he's a walking ATM machine. Yeah, what right. <laughs> that's, that's what he is. <laughs> but but so they, they come with you know the, they're kinda there, but you know, I know just enough about it, you know. And so they're they're engaged at this floater level. And then there's the swimmers, who are those people in between. You know, they maybe have seen the movie, they like the songs, you know, they, they might have a, a, a plush toy or whatever they've seen. But then there's the divers, you know, those are the super uber fans, especially on all the Star Wars stuff that the yeah, company's been right. doing. They find, like, if people like Star Wars, they are uber fans you know, mm-hmm. they've seen all the films they're watching the, all the Disney online you know uh, Disney plus shows they know all the nuances of it and in fact recently the work that they've done in the theme parks with the Star Wars stories yes. I think have been looked at with with mixed success mm. because I believe they they, they designed the experiences just for the divers sure. and didn't think about the, the swimmers and the floaters okay. as well. And so what it forces you to do is you really have to think about, you know, what, what, what is that, the co- getting back to this, those core story emotional things, you know, at the, almost at the cliche level that or those if you're using the subtext thing or mm-hmm. if you're using the, the narrative you know those things that are, are going to work for even the, someone with a very very loose relationship with the product yeah. and then but then be able to build it down to something that does have the depth so that somebody who is completely you know into it has the all the plush toys has all the DVDs, has all the soundtracks, you know, right. they're going to also have a, you know, a pretty deep experience out of it. I want to go back to some of the, something you, you mentioned in your session, and you were, you were building the pyramid, right, no. you know, of, of decision-making. So that was story as, as subtext, right? Is yeah. it like how to use it as a, as a pathway to right. creating... Let's go to the other side of that equation for a second. The story as narrative. I'm just, I, mean, I know we've been touching on it actually in a broad sort of sense now, Unpack some of some of that for us. Uh, I, I get as an architect designer of doing retail or branded experience places that I need a narrative to follow and it helps me make decisions. Um, on the other side, is is that uh, as as narrative? Is that simply that I can connect on the emotional level to the story? Is that is that part of the message? Or help me understand I that think, a little I bit think more. I think yeah, the in fact on the nar- on the story is narrative. The easier part is connecting on the emotional level because you're using a known story in most most cases you know and you're trying and then your job like i was talking earlier about the winnie the pooh thing mm-hmm. your job is to you know find those things to to make it sticky to you know to meet expectations you know mm-hmm. with the known story so the emotional part i think is actually easier than 
some level of intellectual engagement. And I think the intellectual engagement is about putting some structure and logic to it. Because yeah. it's easy. You don't want it to become a collage of just things. Because that would be easy to do. You could just make like a, a Disney soup of, oh, I have the music and the colors and the characters. Check the boxes. Yeah. Do we have all the bits? Right. right. And, and it gets back to a little bit about this, the floater, swimmer, and diver thing, mm-hmm. too. You, you, you know, Disney never played down to people. You know, he, ne- they never, he ne- didn't make kiddie films. You know, all of his films, he wasn't afraid to, you know, go after big themes and, you know, show the dark sides of things like I was talking about with Snow White, yeah. Snow White this morning. So the, the more difficult part, I think, on the, on the, the, the story as, as, um, as narrative is to be able to find those, those structural things and the, um, to, to give it some intellectual depth. As crazy as that sounds at a theme park. No, you know what it, I'm saying? It, you know what I mean? You know, well, we had talked about afterwards, and I had mentioned Joseph Campbell, you know, hero right. of a thousand faces. And, and Campbell would have said that all stories are actually the same story, um, just told over and over and over and over again in different ways, right? The hero goes on the journey. He, has, he meets with adversity. He goes through these trials and tribulations. He finds out something about himself. Then he brings it back to the village, and he makes everyone's life better. Right. Right. Um, do you ascribe to that sort of thinking that all stories basically follow that core yeah, set of absolutely. ideas? Absolutely. Yeah. So, so let me ask you this next question. Because okay. this, what I found interesting is a lot of your examples were from Hong Kong or, or uh, Japan. Um, and I was really curious. You, you had mentioned Duffy the Bear uh, right. story. And I, I, I thought that, ah. Well, by the way, and first of all, you know, I like the way you told stories all the way through the session. So it sort of lined up just right. <laughs> but... Um, are those stories truly the same when you're going to different cultures who have completely different, you know, historical backgrounds, sort of cultural orientations, belief systems, and things like that? Do they do they still re- remain the same, or do they actually change? Did you find them to be different there, for example, than they would have been in Norway or I don't know France or or you know Orlando or any other place? Well, I c- I can only talk from those places that I had you know, experience sure, in. Sure. So it was mostly in, a, in Asia. And um, I, I, it goes back to, I, I referenced that book by that, uh, that anthropology uh, book about... Was uh, that Gilmore? The, no, no uh, not, not uh, experience. Uh, How, Howard Brown's book oh. on uh, human universal, human universal, yeah, I think that was it, just human universals, okay. um, about those things that connect us as as human beings and I even reference I, I told the audience I go any of you that have tra- had the, the privilege of traveling the world you usually come back and think one of the great learnings from travel is you know what we're kind of all the same yeah so it really then it comes back to how does location and culture play into tuning the experience mm-hmm. in, in one way or another mm-hmm. so I so if we kept it at kind of that higher, you know, this is going to make, you know, humor is kind of an interesting thing because people laugh at different things. And I found the Japanese had a very different kind of sense of humor That's about things. You know, and they, they talk about like the French, you know, why Jerry Lewis was so popular with 
the French, you know, and the kind the, how they. I didn't they, know that, but okay, I'll oh, take it. Yeah. Oh, he was he was he was considered the Charlie Chaplin of oh, really? of France, yeah. And so there, I think humor is probably the most tricky one, at least in my my experience of how you translate humor. But again, in my work, you always had to had to use big broad strokes, mm. you know. So physical things always translated pretty pretty well. Um, so I think I, I think I lost I got a little off. No, the, the, uh, the Hong Kong oh, versus uh, North America yeah, version. Yeah. yeah. So I think um, and and I depended a lot on my counterparts sure. too. You know, I would listen, I'd absolutely listen to what they had to say about you know what we were doing. I think the the little bear became such a phenomenon, Duffy the bear, first in Japan and then elsewhere in Asia because they have an affinity for cute. They, they have an affinity for cute, cute. Ah, so, anime, big eyes. Anime, I, can, I can see it. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know if you're familiar with Hello Kitty. Sure. Yeah. Hello yeah. Kitty has no real backstory. Was not a movie. Was not a comic strip. It was just a cute cat. And they love cute characters. And in fact, in Japan, they love mascots. The police department has a mascot, no a way. cute, a cute little, like rabbit character. Before they arrest you, yeah, right. they show up with the cute mascot to <laughs> to calm you down a bit. You know? So, with, with that, that's why we knew that there was this gigantic potential for this little bear. Yeah. You know, we knew they loved all things cute. But it didn't. It, we needed to find that one thing that a connected it to the brand, and then a would connect it to the guests. Right, and I imagine you could. Well, this is the interesting thing about uh, being a, an American designing for other cultures, where um, there are real, interesting, and profoundly impactful cultural specificities to the things that they believe. It's not hard to step in it. You know, yeah. you thinking that well, we can just take our Americanisms. I'm a Canadian, but. I imagine it would be the same thing that North Americans would go elsewhere in the world and simply assume that what they grew up with would be appropriate for other people as well, but it doesn't work. No, that's why I say it's important to listen to the locals, you know, Mm. and they they became a very (laughs) interesting story. This This was more of a physical thing, but when we did, there's a ride called Splash Mountain, which you're you're in this little log boat and you go down and you get wet. And we were told, this was back in the early 90s, the, the Japanese don't like to get wet. Well, well, the reason was, when the park originally opened, it was at a time where women were still wearing kimonos, and sometimes men would still be wearing their happy coats. And these are, these are expensive, beautiful you know, pieces of clothing. Yeah, yeah. And they, they were protective of them, and they didn't want them to get wet. Interesting. So we had to literally redesign. We had to a splash-free rever- we, log. We had <laughs> to re. We had to reverse engineer the splash out of it. That's funny. Isn't that because they didn't like to go out. Now, fast forward 10, 20 years later, where now they're all wearing blue jeans and T-shirts. Right. They actually put the splash, splash back, back in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, but you know what's funny? What's so funny about that? You just re- reminded me. I grew up in Montreal in in the '60s and. And Expo 67 was a big deal. Uh, and they had this ride that was, I think it was called the Flume, which was a P-H-L-U-M-E or something. But it was that, that was the log ride. Oh, yeah. So that log ride's been around and appropriated by a lot of people oh, for a yeah, lot yeah, of yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of water, 
Um, I was curious to, to see that you were also connected to the Disney Cruise Line sort of experience. Um, is that taking a theme park and putting it on the water? It is not. I know, I asked that rhetorical yeah. question, but like, what are the huge differences that you had to contend with there? Well, the first, first thing was, we, again, we knew our audience, and we mm. knew it was a family audience. There were, and cruise, most of the cruise lines up until the time that Disney came into the market, um, they, they were either catering to young adults who were out to party and have a very good time, mm -hmm. or retirees who wanted to sit up on the deck, you know, with a blanket on and read a book. Yeah. Getting those two groups together <laughs> must have been just fireworks, right? Oh, no, so there were the, the, the cruise lines, at the, the different cruise lines, you know, had very targeted marketing and ships and ship designs that worked for those two demographics. Mm. And we knew that Disney was the family audience. We had kids, we had, you know, parents, and in many cases, grandparents. You know, you're working three generations often go to these experiences together. Yeah. So we really had to think hard about just on the, um, on the experience design level that we had to create, and we called it a purpose-built ship, a ship that was going to have amenities that worked for something specific for the kids, something specific for the adults. The grandparents and the adults kind of fell into the same category. But then what were those, those, communal, those communal experiences that brought them all back together? Because ultimately the families go on vacation to have family time together. But the difference was in the theme park, you're there for a day. All right. On the cruise ship, you're there from, the, I think the shortest cruise you can take is three days and the longest are 12 days. So how do you take, and again, it was about translating the Disney brand and what and that expectation from the brand into a product, you know, that would, that would deliver on that expectation without having rides, you know, without having, you know, the big Disney shows, although they did have very large theater shows mm -hmm. on the ship, mm -hmm. but finding the core of that experience that they were having in the parks because we knew a lot of people would go, oh, it's Disney. But we had to work hard, too, marketing-wise, to let them know that it wasn't a theme park on, on the water. On the water. Yeah. So then, then it, came, it came to, you know, where did we use the stories? How much story did we use? In some cases, we could create story experiences. Like we used, there were, uh, we had digital art everywhere that looked like real art paintings. But some of them just came to life when you walked by. But we created this this game that you could play using the digital art. It had a QR code on it. It was kind of low high tech kind of ex experience. But you could you could extend that game over three or four days. Knowing so, mom and dad like maybe after lunch we got an hour before there's a, a talk or something we want to go to. We can go with the kids and play that game. So it was really understanding you know how people an exercise in how they use time on vacation mm -hmm. too, you mm -hmm. know, and, and then making sure that, you know, that time was apportioned in a way that the kids got their time, the adults got their time, and then the family got their time, and then making sure we had physical places and experiences that, that gave them that time and then forced them to be together. I'm curious about thinking about story, and you were just saying, you know, how things... Uh will unfold over, let's say, a three-day period versus the one day in the park. Um, can, can the writing of that narrative be too tight, meaning there isn't a lot of leeway in there for, uh, 
for discovery or is or, or is the story scripted so that there are sequence discovery moments which I think become sort of maybe expected you know it's kind of like you know the, the things are gonna jump out sure. now. all right uh, I'm curious about whether or not uh, you need to leave holes in the story for, for things to happen absolutely absolutely and in fact on the theme on the cruise ships we had more opportunities to do that to make it a little more spontaneous to make it a little more sense of discovery mm. because we had the luxury of time i think it's more it's way more scripted and way more controlled in the park because you know you have people for only eight to ten hours maximum so um it doesn't leave a lot of places for kids or for anybody you know to to leave a big blank that they can go in and maybe fill with their imagination in fact all the kids spaces on the ship I, I said they were. It was just a piece of hardware. It was like it was like a video screen, you know. And it, had, it was a decorated video screen. It was a, a video screen that had Mickey Mouse decorations on it. But what they were watching, the experience, was being created by the the programmers, the the children's programmers, and the operators on the ship. Different kinds of programs. Mm -hmm. That it, it was more like like a like a summer camp kind of experience where this is where it becomes really interesting for me and I, I'd reference Rafik and, and my fascination with uh, Rafik Anadol's work um, but one of the things I, f I found fascinating about this the emergence of technologies <coughs> that I'm fascinated in uh, with this is that um, and stare and spending a lot of time thinking about younger um, consumers and for people who have listened to the show before they're gonna have heard me say this more than once but what fascinates me is understanding what a younger consumers doing with their device as a story maker as a media content producer um, as a as a narrator you know of of their of their own story right, right? even if it's mostly manufactured right as mm -hmm. an outward projection of some narrative they wish to be understood as etc etc um, but the, but in the doing of that they also become really tuned into the power of making stories yeah. And the expectation, to your point earlier, about not just that, you know, they know the Disney story when they show up at the theme park, but that their expectation is going right. to be that because they do it every day, they want to have that piece where it's part of this agency game where yeah. they, they can control where this is going, um, at least to some extent. They don't have to know exactly the end point, but that right. the input then becomes about them. Yeah. Um, and, and not just about Disney, but then there becomes a co-opting of that experience between the brand and the consumer of that mm -hmm. experience, whatever it is. Um, what are your thoughts about, about that? I think, um, and this was happening more towards the end of my, my tenure at Disney World. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was almost a subject of conversation in every meeting was about the level of agency that oh, we had to consider for guests for that very reason. I mean, everyone was aware of how much that device that's in everyone's pocket was affecting, you know, the expectation. Mm -hmm. And again, a lot of conversations about, you know, how much do we give up and how much do we, you know, stay to the traditions of, you know, it's it's more like going to a movie. You know, you don't want to break the, the, the story piece of it. Getting back to what we were talking about earlier, how it could become a dis distraction. But um, and I know they've tried more things, you know, making rides more interactive where you know like I, they did a, a spider-man ride where you know you're spider-man and you get to control the the, the the slinging of your your webs and whatever you know giving giving people more agency into the experience but that's getting back to the cruise ship that's what we 
did on the cruise ship, I think it was giving the, the kids more involvement into the experience, even the adults in terms of, you know, creating this nightclub experience for them where they can kind of shape an evening and, and do what they wanted with it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a fight because it's this fine line about, you know, with agency, how much control do you give up where you're having to give up certain amount of control to give others control? And do you compromise the storytelling experience by doing that? And then how do you hold on to make sure that, you know, that suspension of disbelief that you're still able to keep people deeply engaged in the story and give them agency? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, I, and really, I don't know if I, I don't know the answer to that and if they've really uh, figured well, it we're out. we're done. Yet. Okay, thank you okay. very much, Joe. <laughs> I was leading up to that, and now you just blew it for me. I thought, okay, you know. <laughs> so, uh, I wanted to ask By you the way, this has been super fun. It's been great, right? Yeah. Uh, this is like uh, this is the first like n- totally non-scripted event <laughs> so far okay. in, in 55 episodes. I, I typically end discussions um, asking people three uh, questions, and okay. I'm going to try to ask them to you too, but don't be, okay. don't be scared. It's, it's okay. going to be okay. okay. <laughs> uh, what is your hope for yourself? in the world of, of your work, your creative footprint? I, I, I never want to stop evolving and learning. I'm enjoying well, like what's happening right now. I'm exchanging great ideas or the universal ideas and new ideas and, you know, with brilliant people that challenge me. Like King Solomon said, iron sharpens iron as men sharpen men. Oh, is there, you know? I like that. I'm going to use that. And I, I, I'm on, I'm on this quest to continue to continue to, to it. Yeah, bravo! I mean, that's why I started doing this podcast. Really, yeah. you know, to, to find people. I mean, like yeah, these look, folks. look at these. Yeah, these will keep you sharp. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Bruce Mal was was a delight. I know you yeah. you had done some work yeah. with him um, back in the past. Yeah. But what is your hope for others? I want to see more empathy in the world. I think I think that's yeah. I I'm I'm a. Uh, I'm not a practicing Buddhist, but there's a lot of Buddhist principles, and I'm a, a big fan of the Dalai Lama. And one of his big messages is empathy. You know, what is your hope for your work in the world? I'm at that point that, um, well, first off, I was very, very, very fortunate that I got to create some really big things that are probably going to be around for a while. I mean, as, as I said earlier, you know, I started in film and, um, and I didn't realize it at the time, but you know, you'd labor on a, on a, on an animated film for, you know, two, three years. And, you know, if it didn't have a big weekend, it was usually gone in a few months. But then with the advent of, you know, of streaming and, and video, you know, a lot of these, these things have a longer life cycle, mm-hmm. but most of the stuff I did, you know, you, you poured cement and put up steel or, you know, built a giant ship. And so it's going to be around for a while. So I hope that those things will continue to bring some level of joy, you know, and that I can, I, I have no aspirations to, you know, to do another giant thing. Just, just continue to, uh, what's happening here today, Yeah. you know, that I can take what I did, pass it on, and then maybe see it, you know, have a little bit of, a little bit of influence on on others and and what they do you know i can't change the world <laughs> but 
but be realistic about what, what little little influence. There's a difference between change and influence. I'm going to may, maybe have influence somewhere. I like that idea. You can tell evidently that the crowd has left the yeah, building. building El yeah. Elvis is no longer <laughs> well, in the building, well, and we're, we're, we got to get out of here yeah, because okay. they're closing the place down. Okay. Uh, Joe uh, Lencicero, um, thank you so much for this. It's been, it's been delightful. I, you know, I've, I've just... From the moment I saw you up there and said, and you started opening your mouth about story and, and neuroscience. Well, from and the, the moment nature. we talked on the phone the oh, other that was, day. Oh, that was yeah, a, that yeah. was a love connection. And I just connection. keep finding we have more and more things that we connect on together. Well, thank you for doing wonderful. this. It's been a lot of yeah, help. Yeah, thank you. Next Level Experience Design Podcast is presented by VMSD Magazine and Smart Work Media. It's hosted and executive produced by me, David Kepron. Our original music and audio production by Kano Sound. Make sure to tune in for Dialogues on Data, Design, Architecture, Technology, and the Arts wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And make sure to visit vmsd.com and look for the tab for the podcast there too. Also, remember you'll always find more information with links to content that we've discussed, contact information for our guests, and more in the show notes for each episode.